and welcome to this week's episode of Making It to the Mic. I'm your host, Stephanie Pam Roberts, and my guest today is Michael Crouch. Michael and I both went to Ithaca College as theater majors and have since moved into the voiceover industry. Last week, Jamie Muffet and I talked about how audiobooks aren't exactly our cup of tea, which is why I thought Michael would make a perfect next guest, because he's an audiobook expert. I'll let him tell you how many books he's narrated. It's a pretty incredible number. We also chat about Michael's work dubbing on anime shows. So here's my conversation with Michael Crouch. Hi, Michael, and welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited that you're here. And I'm really, really excited to hear about your journey because I wanted to talk to people from all different genres. And I know you do a lot of audiobooks, which I feel like is a really popular category that I don't know much about. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Cool. So I always get started with the sort of general question. Tell us about your journey and how did you make it to the mic? Well, uh, I have a background in acting, in theater. I um, did shows and acting in the theatrical realm uh, all through high school, and I went to college for musical theater to Ithaca College in Ithaca, New York. And uh, near the end of my time there, I started to fall out of love with theater. I, I wasn't sure I was passionate about it enough to build a life around it. So after doing some summer stock and eventually moving to New York, um, not too long after college, I just asked myself, like, do I really want to be doing this? So I took a break from auditioning and I was like, OK, I'm going to ask myself if I miss it. And I gave it some time and it turns out I didn't. Uh, I didn't miss theater, but I did miss acting in whatever sense, in, in a non-theatrical sense. Uh, I still wanted to be creative. I, I still wanted, you know, that, that outlet that I had before, that expressive outlet. Um, and so I got curious about, about voiceovers. So I first I just read a book about the business. That's when I first learned that commercials are, is most people's gateway into the business. So I was like, okay, if I'm going to get started out, I should take a commercial voiceover class, having no idea if I would be right for it, if I'd be any good at it. Mm -hmm. um, but I actually, and also though, I, I asked an, a fellow Ithaca alum for uh, some class recommendations and uh, she recommended a couple classes and I tried one of them and turns out I really liked it. And voiceover just kind of stole my heart. From taking these classes, I took some time, worked with, did some group classes, worked one-on-one -on -one with a coach, and eventually produced a commercial demo. And I also started to do agent and manager seminars where uh, one night only event where you pay a small fee and you get some face time with an agent and or a casting director too, and get to read copy in front of them and, you know, if they're interested in you, they'll follow up with you to see about representation. Um, easier said than done. Um, I, I did a bunch of those and some stuck. I, I started to freelance with a few different agents. Um, but it was, God, it was a good five years of freelancing and auditioning before I was finally signed 
with an agency. Uh, it was quite a journey. Uh, and now, um, the ones who eventually signed me is Atlas Talent, and I'm still with them. But yeah, there was a lot in between that first audition and the agent signing, that's for sure. I love that. I think that's so valuable to hear because I, I feel like people kind of get into voiceover and they're like, okay, I'm doing it. Like, I, I got everything ready, so I'm going to get an agent, right? And it's like, well, maybe. Um, but I think far more frequently, it's, it is a process and a journey. And so that's really cool to hear that you, not only that you stuck with it through that little, you know, that period of freelancing, but that you kind of kept going and kept auditioning and working and building that career. And then you were ready for the signing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on that note, I think the one of the most valuable pieces of advice I can give is just to be tenacious, to be persistent and patient. Mm. Um, I've had to be very patient through this process. But all, to be persistent, but don't be, don't be a pain in the ass. Um, I, I think it's a fine line. There, there's an art to that. Like there was, we're skipping ahead just a little bit. Um, when I eventually, I eventually got into audiobooks, and I'll talk more about that. But there was this one publisher, man. I'd worked for every major publisher except for Simon and Schuster, and just I had the contacts there. I would email them, but I would never get a response, and. I think I just maybe once every four to six months, I would send an update email to them. I did that for a couple of years until finally I got their attention and they started working with me. Yeah, I think that persistence is important, but it is a fine line and, and a balance between bugging them constantly and saying, hire me, hire me, and a gentle reminder every few months that just says, I'm here if you need me. So after you started freelancing, Okay, so through that process, that's when I started to investigate different areas of voiceover, like industrial narration, business to business or business to consumer, corporate voiceover, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, it just kind of went hand in hand with commercials, actually. Um, and then I eventually got some promo auditions. I don't do, I do hardly any promos, actually, but I did book some back in like eight years ago. So that was branching into a different area. And I took classes, animation classes, to learn more about that. And this was all before I got into audiobooks, which now is the bulk of what I do. Um, but before I get there, one thing that was also helpful for me is I created a page on Voice123. And that was a helpful way to just get myself out there uh, without relying on an agent. Um, I don't use it so much now, but in the past, it, it did, really did open some doors, uh, particularly with anime. Mm. I, I just I put my profile up there on Voice123. I put my, at this time, I had an animation demo and a commercial demo. I put both of those up there. And the voice director of Pokemon at the time, Tom Wayland, he saw my Voice123 profile sent me an email and asked me to come in for a live audition for a couple characters on Pokemon. And so I did. I didn't get them that time. <laughs> but the next year, he had more characters to cast. I came in for a live audition again, and I got one, this cute little guy named Trevor. And I voiced him for a while. He was a recurring character. And then Darren Dunstan, who the, was the voice director, is still is the voice director of Yu-Gi-Oh! over at... Uh, What's it called now? 4K Media used to be for kids. Um, 
he was casting for a new season of Yu-Gi-Oh! And he asked Tom for recommendations, and Tom recommended me, so then Darren called me in for that, and I booked a a regular character on Yu-Gi-Oh! Arc 5 that I voiced for three years. So, And it all started with my Voice123 page. That's amazing. I feel like, you know, there are so many opinions about the pay-to-play industry, but kind of the fact of the matter is that it isn't going anywhere. And if you can embrace it and sort of diversify the places that you find auditions or have your name out there, I feel like that's always a good thing. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think your your story also sheds a lot of light on, you know, be a great person to work with because if you hadn't been, you know, a great person to work with on Pokemon, then when Darren asked for recommendations, Tom may have said, oh, you know what? I don't know anybody or I've got this guy, Michael, but he's kind of a pain. So yeah, don't (laughs) worry about that. You know, so I feel like it's so important for people to kind of know that the industry is small and especially certain parts of the industry. And, you know, to always just kind of be a good person, make a good impression, work hard, you know, show up, do your thing and and be easy to work with. Yeah, that's huge. You know, and I tend to take that for granted, just like the common courtesy and common sense. I feel, you know, there really are people who are a pain to work with and who are (laughs) not responsible. So if you are the opposite of that, if you are responsible and professional, that goes a long way. Totally. Don't don't forget how valuable that is. And I feel like as, you know, theater people from a theater background, you understand that. You know, that mm-hmm. it's important to be a good team player and a good person. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to, to see that that carries over because I think a lot of people think that voiceover is a really like a solo thing, which it can be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I certainly spend many hours in this room by myself, but it also is collaborative. And, you know, if you get cast and you're working on something, um, you may be in a booth with other people, other actors. You may be there with directors, creative team. Um, so I think it's it is important to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. When you did those um, Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh, were you recording with other voice actors live or was that um, did you just do your stuff by yourself and then somebody else did their stuff and then it gets cut together later? Uh, I I recorded everything by myself. Well, I was the only actor in the booth. It was me and an engineer and either an engineer doubling as a director or a a director and an engineer in the studio. Um, But yeah, I, I think with dubbing, uh, it just works best to have to have the actors record solo because you've got to worry about not only the performance but matching the lip, the mouth flaps, and it can get real technical. So as much as I like having other people in the room to work with, I think in those circumstances, I prefer being solo. Can you, for anyone who doesn't know, can you tell us what that means when you say like matching the lip flap? Oh, okay. So in this case with with the anime as an example it was originally recorded with japanese voice actors recorded in japanese and it was animated to uh to those recordings so in our case we are recording over that and putting in english voices whenever i you know voice one of say silvio's lines i will need to the 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 script that they've created you know will hopefully work well with with what's on the screen but it's up to us in the end to make sure that the words that I deliver fit, you know, with the picture on the screen. And um, mm-hmm. it, can, it can be a tricky, tedious process. And that, that is why, I mean, I could never do it solo. Thank 
God, you know, I've always done it with at least an engineer in the room to guide me through that process because I couldn't do that alone. Yeah. Half of your brain is worrying about like the voice and the acting and Mm -hmm. the other half is like watching the mouth open and close and then looking at the script and then looking up and trying to kind of match everything together. But I feel like when when it works, you feel very triumphant. In one way, it is easier in that you have the visual on the screen to inspire you. Mm, True. And in regular animation where the voice comes first, you're using your, you know, all the visuals are in your head. You know, that's something I haven't thought about that. You're right. As soon, you know, as soon as you look, you see the fully animated thing already. You see them, you know, how they move, how they look, what they're wearing. And that's that's such an interesting thing to think about, that that totally informs everything else that you're doing, all your acting choices and your vocal choices. Mm hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I would find myself mirroring the physicality on this that I see on the screen uh, to get the readout. And how long were those sessions? About an hour. Well, no, it would depend. I mean, sometimes I would have a bunch of episodes to do all in a row and they would book me for no longer than a three hour session. Cool. So from that kind of work and you kind of pursuing the commercials and all the other stuff, how did you get into audiobooks? What was your first kind of entry into that? What made you think like, I'm going to try this, you know, these audiobooks next? Well, I, I liked listening to audiobooks, first of all. Uh, on long road trips, I, like I said, I went to school at Ithaca College. I'm originally from Austin, Texas, and I would drive from Austin to Ithaca, and I would listen to audiobooks some of the time. I would switch it up between mixed CDs and audiobooks. Mixed CDs, of course. I know. I love <laughs> them. I'm still very partial to CDs. But uh, yeah, I mean, I never really thought about doing them. Um, even when I was into voiceover, I I was like, okay, that's a thing that's out there. I I don't know if I could do that. I don't know anything about it, really. But I had um, a voiceover colleague that I'd met in classes and that I'd I'd run into at auditions and uh, that uh, became a friend. And her name's Christina Delane. And she started to get into audiobooks. And she recommended um, a coach, a six-week audiobook course taught by this Grammy-winning producer, director, coach, Paul Rubin. And I was like, okay, well, I'm curious about audiobooks, so I'll check out this class. And I knew I, I knew from experience to start with a class, because that's how my journey started in the very beginning. I, I, you can't just jump in blindly. You've got to study. I totally agree. I think it's, you know, if you wanted to just become a ballerina at the New York City Ballet, you wouldn't just walk up to the New York City Ballet and say, I'm here to be a ballerina. You'd have to take your classes and train. And and I think that, you know, voiceover seems so easy in some ways, like it's just talking into a mic. But there are definitely techniques to learn. And and I think especially like in an area like audiobooks, I mean, if I wanted to start in audiobooks, I've been doing this for a long time, but I've never done one. So I would have to take a class, too, to learn you know, all of the new techniques, even within the voiceover, you know, umbrella. Yeah. I mean, and on that note, you know, there are there are incredibly talented actors, celebrities who just don't know how to do voiceover and don't succeed in audiobook narration or in other types of voiceover because it's just a different skill set. The, the, the common denominator is acting, but they're there are particular skills that you need to hone for each particular genre of voiceover, and it takes time. 
so you took the class and then and then kind of what happened after the class? Well, um, so in the so when when I took this class, it was like a, a Tuesday evenings once a week for six weeks. Um, at this time, I was freelancing with Atlas and kind of I think probably between weeks three and four, I actually got an audition for an audiobook from Atlas um, mm. that I could record from home in my home studio, which is not nearly as nice as it is now. It was more of a makeshift arrangement back then. Um, and I very consciously applied what I'd been learning in this class to this audition. And right when the class ended, like, so right after week six, I found out I got it. This was one of those rare situations where things happened fast and the timing was perfect. The stars aligned. That almost never happens. You know, don't forget everything I said about being patient, 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 persistent, persistent, persistent. This is just one of those situations where things fell into place beautifully. And of all things, I mean, it was not just for, you know, a, a tiny publisher in Milwaukee. It was for Penguin Random House, one of the top five publishers. And so this just fell into my lap pretty much. I mean, I put in the work, but it was amazing timing. And so the first book I ever did was for Penguin Random House, which I felt really lucky. And I got to work with a great director um, at a great studio with an engineer, too. So it was the full team. That's awesome. How often do you get audiobook auditions through your agent or is it more in that genre? Is it more kind of on your own seeking out that work? Well, OK, a few things. The this brings me back. This is where thing. This was that that magical moment of the stars aligning. This is when things get back to normal. This is when it's not like I got that first book and I just started getting offer after offer after offer after offer. No, uh, that's that was a great starting point. And then I just had to start all over, pretty much. Mm. I I had to um, first of all, I I still took some one on one coaching sessions with Paul Rubin. Uh, that that helped. And this was after I did that first book mm. um, and then did some demos with him um, and got some samples out there. Uh, and he referred me to some of his publishing contacts. He's like, hey, send these to these these contacts at Simon and Schuster, Harper, other places. And so that was a, a good place to start and make some connections. And I got some good responses from that. Some people did not respond at all, um, but some did. And. I think one of those people that responded was Paul Gagney from Scholastic Audio. And a few months later, he sent me an audition, which was at this time was filtered through my agents at Atlas uh, for a book for Scholastic that I ended up getting. But actually, I mean, to be honest, I had to audition twice because the first time they were like, mm, this isn't quite right. They gave me a second sh shot and I, 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 you know, I got closer to the mark the second time and got the book. But even still, I mean, it, I did that and it was just a, a continuing that process of building contact slowly but surely until it was this was 20. The end of 2013 was my that very first book. Spring of 2014 was the second book. I would continue. I continued to work sporadically, you know, get a book here and there, here and there, month to month, month. It wasn't until the summer of 2015 where I got a bigger book for Penguin Random House, it was this Twilight was rebooted for the 10th anniversary. Mm. So there was a lot of buzz around this. It was Stephanie Meyer, the Twilight author. It was after I did that book that 
got I got more attention from people in the business, and then I started recording books more consistently. But that, that it was a two year process before it got real consistent. So, what is the process of recording an audio book like? You know, let's talk about the process of you book it and then what happens and assuming that you're going into a studio to record. Uh, so say I've just gotten the offer, which wonderfully happens sometimes. I don't have to audition. They just have sent a sample of previous work that I've done to the author and the author says, oh, I want him. Um, hmm. And then I get the gig, which is fantastic. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, so the publisher, the producer at the at the publishing office will send me the manuscript and I'll uh, I'll read it. I read it all the way through. I, I don't wing it and just uh, go into the studio having read part of it unless I've just haven't had time, which I, I almost always make the time. Only under extreme circumstances would I not read the whole book. Um, so I, I've figured out a process that works for me. I read through the book, uh, put it in this uh, PDF app called I Annotate on my iPad. I read with my stylus. As I read, as I go along, I'll make marks that I think that I know will help me read out loud without constantly screwing up. Um, those are just very personal to me and my eye. And then I bookmark each character as they're introduced, so I can go back later and see, you know, a, a bird's eye view of who the characters are in the book. Uh, and then when I finish reading, I'll oh, I'll also mark any pronunciations that are unfamiliar, things I need to look up later. And so then after that, I will take my little notepad. I'll write the title of the book in a gut response. I learned this from Arno Selko in uh, Ithaca College Scene Study. Just kind of just thoughts and feelings, stream of consciousness after I've read the book. Any memories that jump to mind? Any? How do I feel about the book? Do I love it? Do I hate it? Does it make me emotional? Do I feel nothing? I just mm. write that down. And then I make a list of all the characters. Just so, again, that I have a bird's eye view of what this cast is like, and then I'll, I'll star the main characters or, or any character that requires a specific accent or specific vocal choice that is written into the text. And then I'll do what I call my phase two, where I, I could do this in chunks, like say I'm going to do 100, I know I'm going to do 100 pages the, during the session the next day. So I'll take those 100 pages and I'll skim back through them. And I'll just make notes in the margins just so that I can dig deeper into the scene and have a better sense of what's going on so that I don't walk into the studio guessing. And then that's also when I'll look, I'll take note of those things I bookmarked, like, oh, I need to look up the pronunciation of this word, or especially if I don't have a director to help me with that. And then after doing that light, that phase two skim note-taking process, I will try to get a sense of who these characters are and find their personalities and voices. And then after I do that, I'm ready to go into the studio and actually record. Ooh, that was juicy. That was a lot of information. I feel like I don't have the, the brain power for that. I don't have the patience. And that takes a lot of time before you even step in front of the mic to you know gather all of those thoughts and choices that you're going to make. Yeah. Over time, I've learned to condense it. And like, I mean, ideally, I would I, I do like to take my time with that preparation process. Sometimes I don't have time. For example, there was this one young adult book. It was like ended up being like a seven and a half hour audio book I did for Penguin Random House. 
I had to start reading it on a Saturday, finish it on Sunday, and go into the studio on Monday and record Monday and Tuesday. And so that was a pretty quick process. So how many audiobooks have you recorded? About 230. That also includes full cast projects. Like, those aren't 230 books of just me. Um, it's a combination of solo, multicast, and, and full cast productions. That is an incredible number. Congrats on that. That's really cool. Something I've always wondered about audiobooks is how do you make your vocal choices and how different do those choices need to be for each character? That's a very good question. Uh, one, I think it depends on the genre. But two, no matter the genre, your number one goal is to just to just make sure it's clear who's speaking. Mm. You don't want the listener to be confused. If that means changing your voice, like changing the placement of your voice, or maybe just making the intent, making sure you really uh, anchor yourself in the, that character's intention without changing your voice, you can just switch points of view by focusing on what each character wants and where they're going in the dialogue. Uh, and I say this especially if there's no attributions like he said, she said, Monica said, Beverly said, whatever. You know, if you don't have that, you need to find, you don't need to be a vocal chameleon to differentiate the voices. You just need to kind of anchor yourself in that character's personality and where they are in the scene. And you'd be surprised, you know, the mic being so sensitive, it picks up those 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 subtle shifts in energy so beautifully to where you can make these these small adjustments and they'll read bigger than you may think. But depending on the genre, like here's two examples. Like, you know, if you get like a middle grade fantasy, um, this that's an elevated reality. And you will probably read the text and feel, you know, sense a bunch of you'll be absorbing all these colorful characters that want to have animated voices. So I would apply more of an animation technique in that case where I would change the placement of my voice for each character and really embody them and get real physical with it. But it would be a disservice to the production if I were to apply that same technique to, say, contemporary fiction. Depending on the genre and the writing, you just have to be sensitive to what the text is telling you. It, it, it will, could be far preferable to make more subtle choices as you shift back and forth between characters. And so I won't say for this genre you should do this, for this genre you should do that. You just need to be sensitive uh, to what the text is, is telling you as, as an artist, as an actor. That's so helpful. And I think, too, it sounds like you really put in so much work and so much time in the acting moments of it that, you know, that it isn't just about, ooh, how many, like, voices can I do in this audiobook or how many, you know, ways can I sound a little different or how many accents can I throw in? It's like, you know, it sounds like for you and and I'm sure for a lot of really successful narrators, the heart of it really is the acting and those things that we learn in Acting 101, like the beats, the objectives, you know, the tactics, all of that stuff. Exactly. Uh, narrating audiobooks is the most fulfilling type of acting that I've ever done. There's an artistry to it, and you, you put your heart into it. If, it. if it were just about reading the words, I would have cast it aside ages ago. That bores the hell out of me. Like, I want to connect with these people and, and you know, have 
authentic experiences with these characters in this story that happen to get recorded on a microphone. Like, that's how I look at it. I, it's a very personal, intimate thing for me. And I can tell you're so passionate about it because it really comes through as you're talking about this, like how much this work means to you and how much you've put into it, how much time, how much thought, how much effort. And and thankfully, you've gotten a lot of return. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, there have been lots of great things. And on that note, that is why it breaks my heart when I hear that it's a trend these days for people to listen to audiobooks with the with the audio sped up. I don't know. It just really, it bothers me. But, you know, if it enhances your experience, go ahead. Um, but uh, I'm not a fan. I, I listen to audiobooks too, and I just feel like that is a disservice to everyone who's put their heart into the production. It also would not enhance my experience as a listener. But we're all different. I love that you said that you listen to audiobooks because I feel like we as voice actors need to know the markets that we're working in. Yeah. I not only do I enjoy them, it's very good research for me. I mean, I will make lists of narrators that uh get great reviews, that are successful, who have won awards. I mean, some of them I know and others I don't, but I know that I'll learn something if I take the time to listen to their work. And I do. Yeah. And I think for commercials, too. You know, we're always so quick to fast forward or mute them. But if you want to work in commercials, you should listen to commercials. Yeah, that's true. So which genres do you work most in in audiobooks? And what's your favorite? Well, I do mostly contemporary fiction, young adult, and middle grade novels. And then, you know, a sprinkling of I've done a teeny bit of nonfiction and, and the occasional memoir and, and other, other little outliers. But uh, the, the core of it is, is adult fiction, young adult, and middle grade novels. And of the three, I can't, I can't pick a favorite. I mean, it just depends on the book. You know, some are just gorgeous and others are honestly mediocre or not that good but um i've been lucky to do a lot of great books can you tell us about your first home studio i know you kind of mentioned um that your first home studio was a little bit makeshift and then you kind of upgraded from there and i'm so curious what everybody's first setups were oh, the very first one was i got a usb mic it was probably the blue yeti mic and just sat on my desk and I put some pillows behind it. That was the very beginning. Uh, then I got some folding screens and I took some spray adhesive and sprayed um, Oralex foam onto the insides of those screens and then a little made a little cardboard roof for it and then put a mic stand in there and recorded in that little space for a while. And I think then the next step was when I got my actual booth um, that I have since upgraded over the years. I remember when you got that booth and I remember you saying, I have a studio apartment and I'm getting a booth. Uh, am I remembering that correctly? Uh, yes, it was a very small apartment. It was in the corner of the living room. But, you know, you were ready for that upgrade. So which mic did you have when you got the booth? I got a Neumann TLM 102, but it was too sensitive 
for my space. Uh, I was still getting a lot of a fair amount of street noise and it would pick up everything. Uh, so I, I eventually f- I got a Rode NTG3 shotgun mic, which worked a little bit better at focusing the sound and not picking up so much of that street noise. And I used that for years. Uh, but now that I'm in a quieter space um, with an upgraded booth and just a, uh, my booth is further away from the window now in a different neighborhood, um, I am back to a large diaphragm condenser mic. Now I have the AKG C414 microphone and it's worked quite nicely. Is there a difference or sort of an ideal mic for audiobooks or does it not matter? I think most people recommend a large diaphragm condenser like those the Neumann TLM 102 103 and like the AKG that I have. Uh I didn't get complaints using that shotgun mic for a long time and I'd even used shotgun mics at outside studios for audiobooks. But it wasn't until recently that I had some engineers who were like, oh, you're using a shotgun mic for audiobooks? That's terrible. They didn't say it like that. But they expressed their uh, disapproval and thought I would be, uh, I would get better results with a different type of mic. Uh, and so that's what I've done. And I agree with them. I feel like the, uh, the quality is, is better now. So what is your favorite piece of advice to give to people who are just starting out in voiceover and who specifically want to do audiobooks? I guess just make sure you love it because it's it's not there are some people who who go, try to get into voiceover, maybe audiobooks too, but definitely other areas of voiceover. They're like they, they want to make a quick buck. They want to, you know, or, you know, like extraordinary circumstances like last year. There are actors who would be making their living on stage, but they can't right now. So they're getting into voiceover. And that makes total sense. But it's not easy. So it's only going to be worthwhile if, if you enjoy the work. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us so many things to think about, especially in audiobooks. I feel like I learned a lot today that I didn't know. So I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing all of your knowledge with us. Oh, of course. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. 230 audiobooks. How incredible is that? I loved listening to Michael talk about his process and hearing how passionately he speaks about his work in audiobooks. I think what he said about embodying the characters and how he makes his vocal choices was so interesting. And for those listeners who are pursuing audiobooks, I hope you can take some of these gems and put them into practice for yourself. If you'd like to learn more about Michael, I'm linking his website and socials in the show notes, which you can find at my website, www.stephaniepamroberts.com podcast. And to stay updated about future episodes, please follow me on Instagram at stephaniepamrobertsvo. As I grow this podcast, it would be amazing if you could take a moment to subscribe, leave a review, or tell a friend who might also be on their voiceover journey. Thank you so much for listening, and here's a preview of next week's episode. I set up my mic, my new Cinco D2, and I was like, I'm going to do this. And I released it out into to into the world, sent it to the people I was working with. And then the next day, it just like went around the world. And I was like, oh, my God. That's next week on Making It to the Mic.